So first things first, I have to <laughs> talk a little bit directly to Rebecca Denauer because uh, when Rebecca left us our inter or uh, not interview, a <laughs> review on iTunes, she mentioned that we could do a story on a pet rock and she would be interested. And you know what? I have something to say about pet rocks. <laughs> I, I was like, us. I was like, there has to be something, which it sounded kind of familiar. So I don't know if we covered this in another episode. We actually might have, which is weird. Um, but did you know that the inventor of the pet rock shut up, Get out used here. his money that he made from the pet rock to open up a Carrie Nation themed bar called Carrie Nations in no Los Gatos, California? No way. <laughs> That's so funny because when I finally eventually published this cocktail book that I'm working on, <laughs> I was going to f- make the foreword in honor of Carrie Nation. Oh, yeah. Which she would hate. Yeah, she would absolutely hate. <laughs> but I'm doing it. Um, that's hysterical. I love that. I know. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Rebecca Denau because like you totally nailed it with the idea that we could talk about pet rocks and it would be interesting. So well, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad about that. This is much more interesting than what I had planned for the open, <laughs> which was whether or not you check your shoes for spiders. Never. Oh, every day. Okay. <laughs> just, just Great. Glad you. we could get through both. <laughs> <laughs> it was real quick, but we're not here to talk about spiders. No. Or Carry Nation. We already did that. Yeah. <laughs> Long time ago. It was in an episode with Monica Lewinsky. Yes. That was a good episode. It was a great episode. It's one of the ones I recommend to people for early episode Ooh, listening. Yeah. I'm like, if you want to see our growth over the years, yeah. start with episode six mm-hmm. or whatever it was. I don't know. I think six might have been like Barbie or something. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, not the point. You're listening to Herstory. On the road With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we list... <laughs> Listen. Dang it. We talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. In Mm -hmm. fact, we mess things up all the time. But Mm -hmm. you guys tell us. We had um, today an explanation on our Instagram of the connection between HIV and AIDS, which we did not know last week yeah because I, I kept saying that i was like yeah it causes aids and i was like i don't think that that's completely right yeah and i think it's from alicia adams or okay. alicia dams it's like she connected her two names but she is constantly talking to us and liking our stuff on instagram so thank you so much because she gave us the whole explanation um okay so she says um Basically, HIV is a virus, which I think means can can, cause. Yeah, she corrected it later on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, HIV is a virus which can cause AIDS, which is a condition. It usually takes between 10 and 12 years to develop AIDS. And with treatment, it can be uh, extended or even avoided. Huh. Yeah. So okay. No, that's very good to know. I know. I didn't. That's what I said. I was like, I didn't know that. Yeah. So here we I, go. I felt like we were kind of like skirting around it. But, mm. you know, I was like, not going to actually do my job and do research no, on this no, no, thing. No, 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 um, no. We're not historians. We're not scientists. We're not engineers. Not. We are professional drinkers. Mm-hmm. And we are here to tell you about some ladies today. How it's yes. going to work is I'm going to tell a story and serve Katie a themed cocktail. She's going to tell me a story and serve me a themed cocktail. But you are really busy. You are taking care of that pet rock. And they need a lot of care. They do like more than a Tamagotchi. Like it takes 
a lot of effort. <laughs> you have to change out the little grass that's in the box and put the googly eyes on correct. And, you yeah. know, it's just it's a lot. Um, so, so you don't have time. You don't have time to look up these women. Your hands are busy. They're in the grass. Um, so we just are going to describe what these women look like so you can get a beautiful picture in your head while we tell their stories. We are going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Miriam McGeeba this evening, Ooh. and she is a black South African woman who kept her hair very short. She wore both traditional African patterns and headdresses as well as Western style clothing and evening gowns. Uh, she is a like big beautiful eyes and like such a sweet smile but she typically has on like some sort of statement earrings or necklace mm -hmm. that goes along with the uh big statements that she has to say okay mm -hmm. so miriam that's what she looks like uh youtuber because you'll just find so so much all right perfect well, I am doing Emma Rowena Gatewood, a.k.a. Grandma Gatewood. So when we typically see pictures of her, um, she obviously looks a lot like a grandma. <laughs> she is a short, older white woman with whitish gray hair, typically pulled back and pinned with some bobby pins to keep the hair out of her face. Um, she can typically be seen in male dungarees and a button-up shirt <laughs> or it. a gingham dress um she always has on canvas sneakers um her favorites were keds but if they weren't available she would go with some converses <laughs> um and she has little round glasses and she can always be seen definitely outside with a denim sack slung over her shoulder <laughs> okay okay i'm ready these women could not look more different no um i've got the glitz and glam going oh yeah you've got the knot yep that's okay <laughs> do you want to know what you're drinking i do it looks delicious so this is called the mama africa and i based it off of a south african cocktail which they literally only drink dessert cocktails that i could find online really? they love amaretto chocolate liqueurs you've got to have some sort of vanilla ice cream okay. or heavy cream I was like, this is crazy, especially <laughs> since I know I'm first story. Right. But at least it's hot today. Yes. So this is, and I did, this makes two and it's measured in cups. So it's a cup and a half of vanilla ice cream, a third of a cup of almond liqueur, and three tablespoons of heavy, heavy whipping cream. And then I just dumped in a whole bunch of bourbon. That's not part mm. of the cocktail, but I wanted something in it uh, that's a little bit more than, you know, almond liqueur. And yeah. then... Typically in the South African cocktail, they put dark chocolate shavings on top, Ooh. but I opted for coconut because I wanted something a little bit lighter. Okay. So cheers. Mm. It's so good. It's I, such an easy drink. <laughs> I also love amaretto. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. so this is perfect. It's so delicious. We haven't had like a, like an ice creamy cocktail in a while. Yeah. So this feels really nice. I really like it. Um, and I'm glad I added the bourbon because I think that if it was just the ice cream and the heavy mm. whipping cream and the amaretto, that it would have been maybe too sweet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the I bourbon agree. adds a little bit of a kick. Mm -hmm. So what do you know about uh, Miriam Mikiba? I think she was a singer and an activist in South Africa. Mm -hmm. That's all I know. I don't know what time she lived in. I don't know what she did. I don't know how long she lived for. I don't know anything other than she was a singer and an activist 
Yeah. And I mean, that is her story and her story is so straightforward. This is some of the easiest research I've done in a long really? time. Like, first of all, she's written two autobiographies about oh, herself. Ideal. Yeah. And then <laughs> there's just like every single source is just like, here's the timeline. We have exactly where she was at exactly this moment. It's very easy. And I was like, I love this. That's so nice, too, because one of the worst things is when like all of your sources have a different timeline and you're like okay <laughs> like is this a one big conspiracy theory against me trying to do this freaking episode like what is happening um oh my gosh I opened three word documents and I paste like three things that I've typed out in it like outlines and then I do the control f to find words and then I copy and paste them over into the same section I don't need I, didn't, I don't know any what any of that means that's insane <laughs> all my computer people I didn't even know you could do a control f Control F, a little box comes up and you can find any what? word you want. You can even do it on websites. <laughs> yeah. I teach my sixth graders that all the time because I'm like, go ahead, skim and scan for answers. Wow. That is really good to know. <laughs> yeah. Control F. You can find anything and it'll tell you the word geography is used five times in this article and you just keep hitting the arrow and it takes you to the next time it says it. That's perfect. <laughs> it is perfect. Everybody, oh gosh. that's my promo for tonight. Control, Control F. F. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's get started. All right. So... Although Miriam goes by Miriam, her name is Enzil Miriam Makiba, and she was born on March 1st, so happy birthday, 1932, in the black township of Prospect near Johannesburg, South Africa. Her mom was Christina, and she was a traditional healer and domestic worker, and her dad was Caswell, and he was a teacher. Both parents were from different ethnic groups in South Africa, but they were both from the eastern half of South Africa. Her mom was Swazi, and her dad was Zusa. Christina had a, and this is her mom, had a very difficult labor and delivery when mm. she was having Miriam, and many thought that neither the mom or the baby were going to survive. Oh, my gosh. And after that, they were like, listen, we warn you against further pregnancies, although I'm positive Miriam had older siblings. I didn't write down how many, but it was a slew. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of other kids in the family. The family was struggling to make ends meet with their jobs, so her mom started to make money in a way that was traditional for African women for centuries. It was their job to brew beer from malt and cornmeal. The problem was that the apartheid laws had made it illegal for black South Africans to consume any alcohol and what? therefore brew beer. Did you know that? I did not I know didn't that. either. Oh my God. Can you believe that? That it no. was illegal for black South Africans to drink during apartheid? That's insane. I, I had no idea. I mean, what a creature comfort, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, let me drink the pain away. Seriously. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so her mom got caught brewing beer and they didn't have the money to pay the fine for it. Thus, she had to serve jail time. When this happened, Miriam was 18 days old. So Miriam spent the first six months of her life in prison. Isn't that crazy? That's wild. I know. What a cool, like, what a cool way to start. I mean, not great for her mom, but yeah. cool, makes for a cool story. As Miriam's growing up, she did attend all black Methodist primary schools where she sang in the school choir and her extraordinary talent earned her praise as a young singer. Then Miriam started singing at her church in the church choir and she could sing in English, Zuza, Sotho and Zulu. Later in life, she commented that she learned to sing in English before she learned to speak in English. 
When Miriam was six years old, her father died, and that left her family, like, really, really struggling. So her mother had to find even more work as a, a household worker, and she was a nanny for white families in Johannesburg. And because of that, the children had to leave and live with their grandmother because the mom had to live with these white families. Mm. So Miriam was... Obviously not very wealthy, but she was surrounded by a huge family. And it was a family that loved music. Her mother played several traditional instruments. Her older brother collected records from Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald. And her father, before his passing, had been a piano player. At 17 years old, Miriam married a man named James. The relationship was short because during their time together, he was abusive to her she had one child a daughter a year into that marriage but that same year while she's having a baby and living with an abusive husband she gets diagnosed with breast cancer (gasps) this doesn't stop her for from pursuing her dreams and she pushes through and Miriam starts her musical career with the Cuban brothers which is a South African all-male close harmony group She would cover pop songs from America, and at the age 21, she joined a jazz group called the Manhattan Brothers. They sang a mixture of songs from South Africa and then African-American jazz songs. While recording with the Manhattan Brothers, she recorded her first hit in South Africa and really started to gain a reputation as a musician. People are like, she is good. She's in her 20s. She has one baby. She's single. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's just, I mean, her voice is amazing. And like when you type her in on YouTube, it's songs that she's performed. It's music videos. Mm -hmm. So like if you want to learn about her life or see pictures, you have to type bio after it. Okay. Um, Because you're mostly just going to get music videos, (laughs) which are, are amazing and definitely worth watching and or listening to. But the Manhattan brothers would travel around a lot, and she wasn't exactly close enough to that group to travel with them yet. So while they were out traveling, she would perform with this all-female group called the Skylarks, sometimes called the Sunbeams. Um, And as she's performing with the Skylarks, a lot of the music from that period became really popular and she became seen as a part of that crew. And they were real trendsetters in mixing American jazz with South African melodies. Sometimes Miriam would end up traveling with the Manhattan Brothers. And on one of these occasions, she met Nelson Mandela. What? He was just a young <laughs> lawyer at the this is the first time she meets Nelson Mandela. He was just a young lawyer at the time and he later remembered the meeting and said he felt that that girl was going to be something. Mm-hmm. That's a quote from him. Miriam's first solo success came in 1956 with a song called Lovely Lies. In the South African version, it's about a man looking for his loved one in jail and in hospitals because that was the story of the black South Africans. But in America, the English version was translated to you tell such lovely lies with your lovely eyes. This record became the first South African record to chart on the U.S. Billboard Top 100. Wow. Ever. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? It made like the top 100 in the U.S. That is, that's really crazy because mm-hmm. I feel like the typical, you know, the stereotype is that like South Africa gets, you know, very limited music yeah. like way later. Like, you know, like so it's really cool that 
I mean, so what year is this again? Like 56. 56. Okay. So it's like the heart of the civil rights movement. We're still in the early parts of apartheid. Yeah. And she's starting to kind of like break the mold. Yeah. And this is going to be her story that's going to turn out rough for her. Okay. So Miriam starts to sing as female lead in this South African jazz opera called King Kong and it's great it performs for South African white audiences and then also for South African black audiences and it starts to raise her profile once the white South Africans kind of get to know her name and who she is but then she was asked to and agreed to star not star but have a short guest appearance in this film called Comeback Africa which was an anti-apartheid film produced and directed by an American independent filmmaker she was cast this guy's name was Lionel and because he saw her in these on stage performances and she's just so good um so I'm kind of rushing through this part of her life but know that like she was nose to the grindstone she was working Mm -hmm. performing every night the film blended elements of documentary and fiction and had to be filmed in secret obviously the South African government would have been hostile because of the apartheid vibes Her appearance was two songs and it lasted four minutes, but the cameo made an enormous impression on viewers. So Lionel organized a visa so that she could go to Venice for the film premiere. The film won a Critics Choice Award and her presence in the film was described as crucial to the film being an emblem of apartheid because Mm. she was a glamorous, successful black woman, but appearing in a middle-class role where the South Africans were speaking in Zulu as the dialogue. So it was like seeing someone like you look very Hollywood. And you're like, wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Just being in the film got her a lot of recognition. She traveled to London. She traveled to New York. She's performing everywhere. And if we know anything about the British and the Americans, it's that they love pointing fingers at other people's problems (laughs) and not solving their own. Like, this is the middle of the civil rights movement. And America's like, yeah, apartheid's bad. (laughs) Like, what? I don't understand. We love to be, like, really late on the bandwagon for, like, that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like, we've never done anything like that. No, Jim Crow laws are fine. <laughs> what is, like, the thing, like, you know, pointing out the log and you have to pull the log out of your own eye before whatever it is. Look at the splinter in your yeah. finger before the, <laughs> yeah, before the hole in the boat. That's the yeah. In London, she met American singer Harry Belafonte, who would become her mentor and help her record a whole bunch of solo Ah. recordings, including Pata Pata, which was a traditional song that she first performed with the Skylarks. Pata Pata was not released until decades later, and it would become her most famous song. That's the first one that comes up on YouTube. Um, It was a really good blend of, like, pop music and, well, they were calling it Afropop in the article. Uh And people are just like, this is a gem. But to her, she's like, this is one of my most insignificant songs. To her, it's just, like, a melody, and it doesn't have, like, heart behind it. Right. 
So Miriam moved to New York for a bit in the U.S. And um, she's on the Steve Allen show in Los Angeles. She has TV audiences of 60 million. She's singing on stage in New York. She's doing traditional African songs and Yiddish folk songs in New York. <laughs> and people are coming to see her. The audiences include Miles Davis and Duke what? Ellington. People are like, yes, we love this woman. However, she gained most of her popular and critical uh, critical attention in jazz clubs. When she first moved to the U.S., she lived in Greenwich Village. And, of course, she had to experience some financial insecurity. It's hard to move to New York and be a star. That doesn't happen overnight. So she's babysitting also for a time period. And then the 1960s hit. And a lot happens in Miriam's life overnight. I'm not sure what order it happened in, okay. but it all happens. One, she gets the news that she has cervical cancer. So oh it was breast God. cancer. Now cervical cancer. She has to get a hysterectomy. Two, there's this massacre in South Africa. There was a day of demonstration against the pass laws, which if um, you don't know a lot about apartheid, the pass laws were like restricting movement of black South Africans to mm-hmm. go like from place to place. Um, the South African police opened fire on a crowd. Some say it was a peaceful crowd. Some say that the crowd of protesters were being violent towards the police. Either way, there were 249 casualties, including 29 children. Oh, my God. Many people were shot in the back while they fled. Of, yeah, of course. Right. That's so. So that's two. <sighs> Three, Miriam learns that her mother had died in this massacre. Oh, my God. And she's going to try to return to South Africa for the funeral. But because she had been speaking about apartheid on the news in Europe and America, when she tried to return for her mom's funeral, she found out that her South African passport had been canceled. So she cannot return to her home country. Obviously, this left her concerned about her family, as many of them still lived in South Africa, including her daughter. She's like, how do I get back to her then? But her nine-year-old daughter was allowed to join her in the U.S. in August of that year. So later she was allowed to join. During her first few years in the United States, she hadn't sung too much about politics. But after this, she sang a lot about apartheid. Mm -hmm. It was like her something clicked in her that was like, I need to sing about the truth. Yeah. Musically, she continued to flourish. She signed a record contract with RCA Victor and released her first solo album but then the largest record company in south africa bought the contract from them so that she couldn't get royalties like for the performances um and um, it stinks because one of the songs on that album was like the most famous u.s hit in the song oh my god or in of all her songs what a petty fucking move too. seriously and it's i'm like <laughs> i'm not even living there anymore just like let me fucking be and yeah. like i'm i'm in the, i'm across a literal ocean right and you're finding some way to extend your bullshit racism across the ocean like because you don't want me to like what are you doing insane. you're silencing me I'm chewing coconut. <laughs> well, they're silencing her because they know that what she's saying is important. Right. And, and that she has listeners. If that's a, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Time magazine called her the most exciting new singing talent to appear in many years. And Newsweekly said her voice had the smoky tones of Ella Fitzgerald and the intimate warmth of Frank Sinatra. 
my gosh, how have we never heard of her? Then? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> She's so famous that in 1962, when JFK had his birthday at Madison Square Gardens, when Marilyn Monroe was like super high and drunk trying to sing to him, she also had been asked to come and sing happy birthday to him there. And oh she was there God. that day. She was there. <laughs> She did not go to the after party because she felt kind of sick. But JFK insisted on meeting her and sent a car to her hotel to pick her up to make her come to the after party. That's insane. He's like, I need to meet her. So Miriam went on to release her second album, which was an early example of what we now call world albums at the Grammys. Mm -hmm. It peaked at number 86 on the Billboard 200, and she had this cross-racial appeal in the U.S. The white Americans were attracted to her image because it was like, you're an exotic African performer. And the black Americans related to her because she was singing about racial segregation. (laughs) They were like, oh, my God, I totally get it. So Miriam found company among other African exiles. There were a lot of people exiled from Africa living in New York. And she got married to a man. They were married from 1963 to 1968. During the marriage, the pair was next door neighbors to Dizzy Glipsy. <laughs> and they spent a lot of their time in Harlem. She was close with Marlon Brando, Louis Armstrong, <laughs> Ray Charles, Nina Simone, Cicely Tyson, who we just lost earlier this year. Obviously, she believed in the civil rights movement and reinforced her American allies. She said, there's not much difference in America. It was a country that had abolished slavery, but there was apartheid in its own way. Again, say it, girl. Say, yeah, say that because, again, they want to be like, we don't have apartheid here. And it's like. You kind of do, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, but it's honestly like almost worse. I don't know. I'm not going to say worse, but like the it's a cultural, it's mm-hmm. a cultural apartheid right. where like you don't even have to ask people to be fucking racist. You've just created the, the environment where it is accepted and encouraged. Right. Whereas in South Africa, it's like it's a governmental law right. that everybody's following. Yeah. And you can nix the law. Right. But like you, it doesn't get rid of the behavior. <laughs> right. But like now, but you're like, oh, no, we don't have any laws against it. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so she's just constantly seeing these parallels. It's like she li- spent her life living in these two countries who just wouldn't have it um, or wouldn't have her as a person. So her music was also popular in Europe. She traveled and performed there on a regular basis. She added songs to her repertoire from Latin America, from Europe, from Israel, from elsewhere in Africa. She visited Kenya to support their country when they got independence from British rule. And that same year, she testified before the United Nations Special Committee against apartheid and against the South African National Party government. She requested to the UN an arms embargo on the basis that weapons sold to the government were used against black women and children. As a result, her music was banned in South Africa totally and her citizenship was taken oh. away. Oh my God. She is now considered a stateless person, but she was soon issued passports from Algeria, Guinea, Belgium, and Ghana. <gasps> they were like, fuck you guys. <laughs> we're going to give her a passport. That's awesome. So 
soon after she gets all these passports and she's no longer a citizen of South Africa, the emperor of Ethiopia invites her to sing at the inauguration of African unity as her band uh, became well known to the rest of the world. She became a symbol for both the civil rights and for anti-apartheid as the 1960s went on. She grew her connections between black centered political movements, not only the civil rights and anti-apartheid, but black consciousness and black power movements and the black Panthers. In fact, she met Stokely Carmichael, who was a prominent Black Panther leader. She performed at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which MLK called MLK Jr. called the event like the best of the year. But immediately following performing at that event, she was denied entrance to a restaurant in the South because of her skin color. So then she led a protest that was televised against Jim Crow laws. There you go. In the U.S. Her involvement was helping people in the United States realize the connection between domestic and international racism. And in general, people really liked her and her music. So they were like, "Okay, like we hear you. We see you. In fact, in 1966, she received a Grammy for Best Folk Recording, and the album just flew off the shelves, and her concerts were sold out. This was the first Grammy Award for a South African person. This is when they finally released Pata Pata in the U.S. And it was like flying. <laughs> but then remember how I told you she met Carmichael, mm-hmm. the um, leader in the Black Panthers. They had fallen in love and they kept their relationship a secret for a while. But then they got married, which caused her popularity to seriously decline in the U.S. Because you mm. know how we hate the Black Panthers yeah. here. <laughs> People were not okay with her connection with that organization. Her performances were canceled. Her coverage in the press was declined and depleted. They, she even tried to say, like, my marriage is not political. Right. I have nothing to do with this organization. I just love this man. Yeah. The CIA began following her and placed hidden mics in her apartment. The FBI also placed her under surveillance. Oh so God. her her husband traveled to the Bahamas because she has events she has to go to. Uh, and when she tried to return to the U.S., she was denied entry. Oh my so she's now not allowed to enter South Africa or the United States, both of which she had lived in for, you know, 15 to 20 years. Right. Which is insane. So she's like, wow, great. So she goes to Guinea. And she lives there for the next 15 years. Carmichael came with her. She became close to the president of Guinea and his wife. And after her rejection from the U.S., she starts to weave in U.S. politics into her music. So now, like, things are like the ball is rolling. Uh As countries became free from Europe, like European colonization, Miriam would perform more and more in these African countries. She was at the independence ceremonies for Kenya, Angolia, Zambia, Tanganyika, Mozambique, and Zaire or Congo. She even became a diplomat for Ghana. She was an official UN delegate. She performed at the Pan Africa Arts Festival in Nigeria. And during this period, she was given the title Mama Africa. South Africa is in its 70s, and it's not doing well, the 1970s. The government replaced English with Afrikaans as the medium of instruction for school. So, like, 20,000 kids were like, no, and they tried to protest. And then the police shot at them, killing hundreds of children. Um, Then she writes songs about this, and it is just like the lyrics are cutting in her music. She did end up separating from Carmichael in the 80s um, and then was married to an airline executive. 
But then tragedy struck again. Miriam's daughter, who was a singer in her own right, died in childbirth <gasps> in 1985, oh which left gosh. Miriam raising her two grandchildren. And she also, like, still has, like, cervical cancer, right? Yeah. I mean, she's going like, through breast cancer, like cervical and cancer. Stuff like that, she got but... a hysterectomy, like, all okay. that stuff. Yeah. Um, <sighs> she moved away from Guinea, took in her grandkids, and moved to Belgium near Brussels because they're one of the people who gave mm-hmm. her a passport. Shortly after moving there, she met Paul Simon and embarked on his Graceland tour. During the tour, Warner Brothers Records signed her to release a new album. The tour was a little controversial, though, because Paul Simon's Graceland stuff had been recorded in South Africa. So this kind of broke the boycott of her music in South Africa, and it started to flow back in. Okay. Then she started working with journalist James Hall to write an autobiography, the first of two, in which she discussed her life living in apartheid and her experiences living in the U.S. civil rights movement the book was translated into five languages then she took part in nelson mandela's 70th birthday tribute he was still in prison at the time it was 1988 he was released in 1990 it was broadcast in 67 countries to 600 million people oh my gosh the majority of the viewers were between the ages of 16 and 24 and three-fourths of the watchers knew who nelson mandela was and supported his release from prison The political aspects of the concert, though, were heavily censored in the U.S. So Mm. there wasn't like you couldn't really see the like segregation apartheid part of it. Yeah. South Africa was getting increased pressure from the world in the late 80s and 90s from anti-apartheid organizations. And in 1990, the president of South Africa reversed the ban on the African National Congress and other anti-apartheid organizations and Mandela was released from prison. Nelson Mandela personally persuaded Miriam to return to South Africa. So on June 10th, 1990, after over 30 years of exile, she returned with a French passport. In 1991, Miriam recorded an album called eyes on tomorrow with nina simone and dizzy galipsy it had jazz r&b pop and traditional african music and they toured the world to promote it she went on to continue to be in the public eye she was on the cosby show she was in a movie called serafina she was the goodwill ambassador for south africa to the un she got another grammy for her album homeland she worked with the first lady of south africa nelson mandela's wife to work with hiv and aids child soldiers differently abled people the girls in the country orphans in the country she was in a documentary about apartheid and wrote a second autobiography in 2004 then finally after all of this in 2005 she announced her retirement to the world and began her farewell tour but she continued to perform until her death On November 9th, 2008, Miriam fell ill during a concert in Italy. She suffered a heart attack right after performing, and doctors were unable to revive her. She released more than 30 albums in her career. And she said, people say I sing politics, but what I sing is not politics. It's the truth. She'd been given countless honorary doctorates. At her death, she held passports from nine countries and was an honorary citizen in ten. She's known as Mama Africa, the Empress of African Song, Queen of South African Music, South Africa's First Lady of Song, and Africa's First Superstar. Mm. And that is the story of Miriam Makiba. I can't believe how that I've never heard of her. much she is literally woven into the fabric of the, the U.S. 
music scene. You know what I'm saying? Like literally all these people who are just this incredible foundation of music here. Like, and they're like incredible names that we know. Oh yeah. And they all love her. (laughs) And she's just, and like, I wasn't expecting her to be in the U S for so long. Yeah. And then of course to just be, you know, fucking denied access after all that she has done and all that, all the people she knows, it's just horrible. But wow. Yeah. I just didn't expect her to be so present in what a life. music history. I, I mean, what a life. She, yeah. She's so present in the U.S. And just to be turned down from so many countries. Yeah. I yeah. just can't imagine trying to go home and then being like, nope. Yeah. No, definitely. And also, like, really focusing her music on politics. Like, yeah. I like that instead of being like, okay, I'll go back to doing pop music. She's like, no, I'm going to make it more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it also reminded about me. This. It reminded me of... Um, when Malala just like one day left Pakistan and she's like, when am I ever going to go back? Yeah. Like I long to see that place. Yeah. I just, there, there's a lot of stories that we talk about and very rarely do we talk about exile. Yeah. And that's a, it's an interesting one. Well, it's a very lonely experience experience. Yeah. Because yeah, like you're just away from everything and not by choice. It's one thing if you choose to remove yourself, but being yeah, forcibly exiled from your home is just, and then from your chosen home, you know, like right. she lived in the U S for so long and then to be rejected by both homes. Like that sucks. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, are you ready for more drinks? I am <laughs> so ready. All right. Let's get some more cocktails. This is Stephanie and Tux from the podcast Beyond Reproach, a show about political scandals from American history, but it's fun, we swear. The idea behind our show is that politicians and government officials are meant to be public servants and their behavior should be beyond reproach, but if history has taught us anything, it's that a lot of politicians are total scumbags. So we decided to do a show where we drink period-appropriate historic cocktails while exploring some of the government scandals and shitty politicians of America's past. We are not historians. We're just a couple of drunks who never shut up and love history. We hope you'll join us on Beyond Reproach for some big facts, good laughs, a little bit of swearing, a lot of drinking, and a real good time. America's history is juicy. We just add gin. Not woman power. <laughs> it's girl power. Guess what we're talking about? What? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Um, okay. Yes. Are you ready for part two? I am ready for part two. <laughs> I cried a lot during this research. Of course For no reason. This is the thing. It's all for very personal reasons that I had no business crying over. Is this the Appalachian? Yes. <laughs> now, listen, guys. I don't okay. really say Appalachian. That's just what I'm <laughs> saying right now. So, okay. You can tell me your drink and then we can do this. Okay. 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 This is beautiful. <laughs> it's so in contrast to what I made. And I'm I know. so excited because I'm not a huge fan of dessert cocktails. Yeah. Um, I had, they have have to be very sparingly for me like I enjoy them when I'm yeah. drinking them but yeah I'm not a person who's like drinking a milkshake like, on a regular basis season is coming <laughs> and I hate winter is coming oh, winter call summer is winter coming. is going away <laughs> yeah that's the real that's the real shame 
<laughs> is that sweater season and I no longer have COVID as an excuse because I am uh, one of the zombies now. You're fully vaccinated. I am. Mm. What a gift. Um, <laughs> I'm, I just want mine so bad. And I know I'm not going to get it until like. It's coming. I know. Coming. I know. I have faith. I just want it. Um, Fingers crossed. Okay. What is this beautiful okay. drink? So this is called Trail Magic. Um, so I wanted to create something that kind of encompassed, you know, Appalachia. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I was thinking about things that we have around here. So it has a, you muddle um, cherries and basil in the bottom of a cocktail shaker glass. And then um, you put two ounces of bourbon on that. And then a half an ounce of peach schnapps because for the Appalachian Chili, you start in Georgia. And then a half an ounce of maple syrup because you end in Maine. Perfect. <laughs> I'm so excited to I drink know. This. And you shake it all up and <laughs> there's a go. Cheers. Oh, it's so good. <gasps> it's tasty. I really like it. Mm. Um, wow. I, I keep getting different notes with mm. every little moment. Wow. Mm. The basil hit me last. Is that basil? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that hit me last. Yeah, you muddle the basil with the cherry, mm. which is really nice because yeah. they're also, these aren't maraschino cherries. These are like the deep cherry, cherry. red cherry cherries that I love so much. Yeah. <laughs> and they always remind me of like Maryland summers, which like, you know, you pass through you know, Maryland on the Appalachian Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they grow here. I don't know where cherry trees go <laughs> grow. I think in the south, but anyways. Um, no, they definitely grow here. There's one I in think Fred's front yard. Oh, really? Yeah, on oh, Gibson yeah. Avenue. Okay, you're right. Yeah, they yeah. definitely grow here too. Um, but here's what I will say. <laughs> For those listening, um, we say Appalachian yes. in Maryland. Yes, we do. But a lot of people say Appalachian. So whenever we say Appalachian, it's a joke, but we're not making fun of you. No. We're just making fun of it. Exactly. <laughs> it as a concept. Um. Right. That we, that we say we say a soft C and you say a yes. hard C. Because honestly, C shouldn't be a letter. What? I believe that every C could be replaced with an S or a K. Huh. And therefore, C should be non-existent. You are right. I know. Huh. I never thought about that. Yeah. Get rid of C. That's the that's the milk crate. I'm going to yeah. die on. <laughs> the milk crate. Soap. What is it? Soap. It's soap. Soap stand. What is it? Soapbox. Soap no. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. So all I know about this woman is I think that she was the first woman to walk the Appalachian Trail to completion, which is a hard thing to do. Uh, Katie's brother did it when my kids were very, very young. Um, and all Caroline used to say when we would say, where's Uncle Zach? She would say, he's on a walk. <laughs> he's out on a walk. Because we didn't want her. He was very concerned that she would forget him. Because <sighs> she was like the first grandkid, the first oh, niece, yeah. the first whatever. And he's like, I'm going to be gone for like six months of the, you know, second year of her life. Yeah. And I was like, we'll talk about you. Oh, yeah. Uncle yeah. Zach's on a walk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's all I know. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I just, I remember like that. The the reason I was crying a lot during this research was because the year that like Zach went on the trail was a very rough one for me because mm. <laughs> I was thinking about that time period and it was so horrible. It was like I was in like, you know, my first year of college. I was in this horrible relationship, relationship. <laughs> um, you know, and like Zach was like my like closest brother at the time. Like right. we hung out all the time. All of our friends were the same. And then like so he's gone. Uh, fiance was addicted to heroin and in jail and he was gone and then like you and Jake had kids like newborn babies and, we were and very you gone. were gone and like our other friend Corey joined the Navy and I was 
just like it was just one of those time periods where like literally the only person I have is this like horrible boyfriend who treats me like shit and like yeah. it was, I don't know it was just one of those things like I was just felt like I was reliving all of those emotions <laughs> Well, and also your your grandmother had dementia at the time, so your parents yeah. your parents were their attention was also right. very so like you, you spent. were kind of you were very on your own. Yeah, I was, and also again, college was a real shock for me because I went to school with ten people. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't know who I am, and nobody's here to tell me. Um, um, but wait, so from what I understand, like some of the famous trails, if you're a hiker in the United States, mm-hmm. the Appalachian Trail is the this coast uh-huh. one. What, the Pacific one. The Pacific the, Crest is, right, yeah. That's the Lorelei Gilmore Coast. one. Mm-hmm. But then there's one that goes across. Oregon Trail. Well, there's Oregon Trail, and then there's, I think, one other one, but I don't remember the name of it. I feel like there's one that goes all the way from East Coast to West Coast. Yeah. Um, Like, almost like out Route 70. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just, you just take Route 70, yeah. but walk next to it. Something um, like that. No, but there's a lot of yeah. pretty cool trails. This is no, the shortest are. one. Mm-hmm. Yes, it uh, is. But it's also an interesting one because you go from humid, humid south Oh, yeah. Cold, cold north. Oh, yeah. And you have to plan it perfectly. Yeah. If you <laughs> or don't... else you will be in horrible weather. Yeah, exactly. OK, so tell okay. me about her life. I'm so excited. OK, so my sources were um, a couple podcasts, uh, the podcast I Don't Know Her, Mountain Murders, and then The Outdoor Station. Um, they interviewed Ben Montgomery, who was Emma's like great, great, great grandnephew. Um, and he like always heard these stories about, you know, Grandma Gatewood, Grandma Gatewood. And then he was like, I'm going to write a book on her because there isn't one. So he wrote a biography about her called Grandma Gatewood's Walk, the inspiring story of the woman who saved the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> so let's get started. Oh, yeah. And of course, like Wikipedia. <laughs> and wait, this was a request, right? I don't. Somebody requested this. I'll say who. Okay. I'll find out. We'll who, find out who. And somebody we'll put it in absolutely later. requested this. Okay, great. I feel like I have, like, the list is so long now that like we wrote out the season and didn't put it in the season notes. Yeah. So now, like, I, I will forget, find it. It's I very forget, intimidating. I forget to like cross reference. I'll find it. You tell okay. me. You tell me the story. Okay. So Emma Rowena Caldwell was born on December. Or, no, sorry, December, October twenty fifth, eighteen eighty seven, mm. in Gallia County, Ohio, which is just over the West Virginia border. So very Appalachia. Rebecca Denauer. territory. The same person who I was talking about in the intro. Get out of here, girl. I literally dedicated the intro to her and I didn't realize that she fucking suggested this person. Well, here we go. Rebecca, I'm so disgusted with myself and (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Shut up. up. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. Um, Her father, Hugh, was a farmer and a Civil War veteran who unfortunately had his leg amputated during the war and had since turned to a life of gambling and drinking which left emma's mother evelyn alone like he just kind of was useless and then eventually i think like disappeared or died or something i really don't know civil war veteran for the north they're in ohio so that's a little dicey it's dicey it's the middle states yeah the middle ground middle um so evelyn was left alone to raise 15 children in a small log cabin in rural ohio shut up is this a blinking children (laughs) The children <gasps> slept four to a bed and worked very hard to help their mother raise all of these kids, which I mean, Emma talks about like she was like, I just worked to the bone like my whole childhood. No. <laughs> like, Listen, I sleep four to a bed and it's just me producer, my dog and my cat. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> and it's a king size bed. 
Not a California king. Yeah. <laughs> a Maryland king. Uh, I mean, and this also meant that she didn't get, you know, a proper education because like this, again, is rural area. So like they only did eighth grade. That was just for everybody. So like the school only went to eighth grade. So she decided to kind of skirt around this because she loved school and she loved reading. So she just kept doing eighth grade over again. <laughs> She was like, I don't want to leave school. Aww. So, yeah, she just kept doing it. Um, That's what I did. I just kept going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but a lot of the housework fell on Emma. Um, so she's going throughout her younger years. We don't really know too much about her early life. Um, but on May 5th, 1907, when Emma was 19, she married a 27-year-old college-educated primary school teacher named Perry Clayton Gatewood who um, would later become a tobacco farmer. Um, So he had been courting her for like a little bit, but Emma was like, look, I'm like 18. I don't know like when I want to get married. I don't know if I want to marry you. She's like, I think I'm a little too young. But he was really persistent and he just kept coming around and proposing to her and, and like, and she was kind of like shy and passive when she was younger. So like she was just like, I don't know. And, you know, she was trying to put him off. And then he was like, you know what? It's now or never. Marry me now or I'm leaving Ohio forever and I'm going out west and I might die. Ultimatums are the worst. So she's like, oh, okay, Jesus Christ. All right, fine. And she accepted the proposal. That's when it turns from romantic to terrible. Exactly. Because I do sometimes, like, get uncomfortable if I'm watching, like, a, a like fictional movie or reading a book where the guy keeps coming back and back and back. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... You know, there's the no means no thing yeah. and like leave her alone. But then at the same time, it's like it's kind of cute. I well, it's it's so it, hard. Well, you have like something like that. Like you have to know the inner workings and like this. Like she really did not want to. She should let him he, go out west. Yeah, I know. Go find Carrie um, Nation. She's out there. She's there, girl. Go find her. Um. So she thought that a nice elementary school teacher was a safe choice. But almost immediately after their marriage, Perry left teaching to do tobacco farming um, full time. And he put her to work doing the brunt of the work on the farm, which included building fences, burning tobacco beds, mixing cement. So she's literally like out in the fields all day doing horrible manual labor. And then she also has to make sure the house is okay because if anything was out of place, he would get really upset. And like, so she's cooking all the food, you know, and they have to make everything. She's churning the butter, like everything is falling on her. And he is also beating her and sexually assaulting her on a daily basis. Why did he want to marry her so bad? I To treat her so awfully. Is this what he was taught a marriage was? Is this what his dad did to his mom? I think that he was just like, I want a wife and like, this is the one here. I don't, I don't know what I, so weird. I don't understand it because I don't, yeah, it's horrible. Um, so it started about three months into the marriage and went on for about 30 years. Oh my God. 30 years. 30 years. Thankfully, the abuse did not trickle down to their children, um, of which they had 11 together. And we can assume that a lot of them, if not most of them, were this product of sexual assault because he demanded sex frequently and would take it, raping her. It just, I don't, I don't like. 
Marital rape is something a lot of people are uncomfortable explaining and understanding. Yeah, exactly. Like, so I didn't want to not call it rape, but like, you know what I'm saying? It's just yeah, marital rape is a yeah, true thing, a true thing that happens. And it was happening to her. Um, but thankfully, like, you know, the kids were not harmed themselves, but they were witness to this terrible abuse of their mom. So as the years went on and she kind of realized that like her kids were going to be okay, she would often just leave and get herself out of the house. And she would just go into the woods for periods of time just to get like at least a little break from the abuse. Um, But of course, she'd always come back for the kids. But this escape turned into her treating walking as therapy and like a safe haven. So she would make a habit of walking 10 miles a day just out in the woods. In 1937, she tried to escape him for good by moving to California. But after a couple months, she just couldn't be away from the kids. So she came back. Um, But after this, he didn't trust her. So believe it or not, things got even worse. And after this trip to California, he beat her nearly to death 10 times in just a year. Like to the point where she was unrecognizable. Like you couldn't see her face. And then in 1939... Is this would be the worst he ever beat her. Um, she ended up with a bloody face, broken teeth, a cracked rib, like a host of other injuries. And so she tried to defend herself. She usually did. Um, and she threw a sack of flour at him. And he was so enraged that she did this that he called the police and Emma was promptly arrested for domestic abuse. No. Mm-hmm. That's such bullshit. I know. She threw a sack of flour at him. She probably had bruises all over her body. Yeah. She didn't have... She He ripped her teeth out. Her face was completely bloodied. She, he broke a rib. Like, she had horrible injuries. Do, I mean... That were obvious. These are not... Like, these are on the, her face injuries. I mean, do you almost wonder if the police took her to, like, save her? No. Or is that my <laughs> hopeful thinking? It's your hopeful thinking, okay. but this does end up saving her. Okay. Um, thankfully, the mayor of this little town um, saw her face and realized that she was not the abuser. And he was like, no, 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 this is not going to stand. And the mayor took her into his home for protection. And him and his wife nursed her back to health. And then when she was back on her feet, they helped her get a job. So she got a job now. She's making like $25 a week. And he goes, I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to help you get a divorce so you can finally be rid of this horrible man. And this is the thing. Divorce at this time for a woman like is really fucking hard. I mean, this is like early to mid 1900s. This is 1940. Like right. It was really hard, and especially, like, in a rural area like this. And so if she didn't have the backing of the literal mayor, it probably never would have happened. So shortly after this, she finally left Percy for good, Perry, whatever his name is, for good. And they and she filed for divorce in 1940 at the age of 53. She got married at 19. That's so many years to live so in such long. a terrible existence. Yeah. And it's like, I'm sure there are moments of joy. I'm sure she, you know, the, so her, she loved her kids. Right. Like, I'm sure, you know, fun holidays, moments of possible love with this man she was married to. But that does not make 30 years of shit. Okay. No. Um, and of course, Perry um, tried to stop this. He tried to have her committed to an insane asylum. He tried to get her arrested again, like so many times. But. Thankfully, like eventually it was all over um, in 1941 and 
He took his losses, moved to the West Coast. He's gone. Uh, for a few years, she just enjoyed being a single woman, taking care of the rest of her couple of kids that were still home. But then one day, she walked out the door and said, I'm going for a walk. Uh, this was pretty normal for Emma. She would often just leave and not tell her family where she was going or for how long. But this time was different. Emma was going to accomplish a goal. She was going to hike the Appalachian Trail. How old was her youngest kid that you can just be like, see ya? I think at this point, um, the youngest kid was like in their late teens. So they're old enough to like handle old enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah, she didn't leave until her kids were all like okay to handle themselves. Like right. she wasn't leaving like a ten year old. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So as soon as like yeah, all the kids were good enough to be left alone. Yeah. yeah. She they could like make a grilled cheese. She bounced. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So the year was 1955, and Emma was 67 years old. No. And for the past five years, Emma had been dreaming of hiking the Appalachian Trail. She had read a 1949 article about the trail in National Geographic, and the way she described it was beautiful trails with easy walking and cabin accommodations all along the way. It's not really true. <laughs> There's a lot of like hammock sleeping. Exactly. <laughs> Lots of wet ground and leaves and hunger. And um, spiders <laughs> in your so shoes. Flies. <laughs> but she read this, but that wasn't the biggest thing that piqued her interest. The article said that a woman has never hiked the entire Appalachian Trail by herself. I feel like that's bullshit though, right? What? Like, I bet it's happened, but it's not recorded. It might have not been recorded, but the trail wasn't that old. So we're going to get into that in a minute. So there okay. was like a Native American woman who had like walk long distances. I forget. I should have written it down. Um, but they're talking about like the Appalachian Trail as we know it from Today. Georgia to Maine through hiking with no one else right so they're not talking about like indigenous women who no, walked no, no, no. this yes. for centuries no yeah okay we don't care about them <laughs> duh you uh, <laughs> know they don't matter exactly <laughs> we're talking no, about what white woman did it exactly um <laughs> which i do appreciate that the appalachian trail does acknowledge that the website does acknowledge that mm -hmm. <laughs> like this was the you know like they do like they do give mention to like they're obviously Native American tribes who have lived here fucking forever. So, yeah. like, let's acknowledge that for this a second. This is just the trail that we the, cut the, after we exactly. destroyed their culture. Exactly. And now we're good at walking it. <laughs> um, and then there had been, like, a woman before who had done it, like, with her husband, but they didn't do a through hike. They did it in, like, parts, which a lot of people do. You yeah. know, like, they'll do a section. And then you stop and, and come and back. And then you stop and come back. Mm -hmm. Ooh, producer, like, a little bit ago was like, I feel like once our kids are gone, we could totally do that. And I was like, do you fucking know me? No. <laughs> like, could I walk the Appalachian Trail? Absolutely. Right. Do I want to? No. No. <laughs> Watch me end up doing it's it for not him. my journey. No, but can you not picture producer doing that without his hair gel? I don't think he could handle it. I honestly don't think. I, it's not his cup of tea. No, he would do it because he's so stubborn. Oh, yeah. But now that it's in its head, it might be my journey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it might be my journey when I'm 50. Great. <laughs> um... So she went off, leaving her 11 children and 23 grandchildren 
She had 23 grandchildren well, at this point. I mean, that's only double your kids, though. <laughs> so, like, yeah, come on, everybody. She had 11. What do you have, two? Exactly. Um, again, with them having no idea where she was going. Uh, so just a little bit of history in the Appalachian Trail. Um, the idea for this trail that would go across basically the you know eastern seaboard came about around 1921 and it was completed in 1937. The trail goes from Georgia to Maine through 14 states and is about 2,200 miles long. It is a very difficult journey, which takes a lot of physical and mental strength to complete. The terrain is mountainous for its entire length with an elevation gain and loss equivalent to hiking Mount Everest from sea level and back 16 times. That's the elevation. I mean, it's a, it's a, we're in a hilly area. Yeah. I mean, it's like the mountains, the Appalachian mountains. <laughs> yeah. All mountains that you're walking through. Um, also, you have to time out your walk so that you are going in the most comfortable months to be outside on the East Coast. Like we talked about earlier, if you misjudge the time, you could be walking in snow or in 100 degree humidity. <laughs> the journey typically or takes. Yeah. <laughs> the journey typically takes four to seven months and it takes a lot of planning. You like mail shit ahead of time. Yeah. I didn't realize that until Zach did it where he like literally like he did it with a friend of his from high school and they like literally had boxes and boxes of supplies that like you know mail to yourself you mail to yourself in future states you're like mail this to the post office in cumberland maryland yeah and we'll get there eventually and then like, mail this one into new york and yeah. we'll find it we'll get there and we'll get that so we'll get the granola bars yep exactly um yeah it's just yeah uh, it is currently maintained by many groups and organizations, including the National Park Service and the Appalachian Trail Conservatory, and of course, Trail Angels, um, who are people who help people out on the trail. I know Zach met a lot of them, just people who live along the route, and they love taking hikers in and like feeding them in clothing, who will definitely come into play in this story. But again, this is 1955. So a lot of the things that hikers experience today are not there for emma <laughs> i mean there aren't as many people hiking on the trail so there's no need to maintain it as much and it's new um but there she is day in and day out just walking in the woods she was wearing simple keds just little canvas shoes and she carried an army blanket a raincoat some pins a first aid kit a flashlight a piece of rope one change of clothes and a plastic shower curtain oh. So Nellie Bly of her. Mm -hmm. All in a homemade denim bag slung over one shoulder. <laughs> now, she did have a tiny bit of experience on the trail. She's being such a vagabond. Um, I, I love know. it. <laughs> so the year before, 1954, she had actually tried to walk it. But she made one big, well, she made a lot of rookie mistakes. But number one, she started in Maine, which you don't want to do. Don't go backwards. You don't want to go backwards. You want to go south to north. But that wasn't the only problem. So she started in Maine, which you don't want to do. And then so she walked like for a little bit and then she like stopped by a lake and she took a rest and then she got up from her little nap and she stepped on her glasses, which she needed to see. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> then she got lost because she couldn't see um, and she walked into a literal field of thorns and she got herself just all fucked up and she's just like lost wandering around the woods. <laughs> poor old woman and it's terrible finally like the rangers thankfully find her and they tell her go home grandma this <gasps> isn't a place for you 
And of course, she was like, this is the place for me. Get the hell out of here. So she went home, planned a little bit better and came back. So this time she was going to start in Georgia (laughs) the correct way. And no one was going to stop her. So off she went with no tent, no sleeping bag and very few provisions. Oh, my God. Now you might ask, what did she eat? Well, you have to get your protein. So she mainly relied on canned Vienna sausages, which same girl. Um, How could you not? love a vienna sausage if you, i i can picture her on the trail like drinking the juice <laughs> and just i never do that That's i don't either but she, i'm sure she's disgusted with herself oh, as probably. she's doing it mm-hmm. she's like well i need the sustenance and then like <laughs> gagging it back can everyone picture that <laughs> have i made you want to throw up in your car I'm gagging right um she also had raisins peanuts and bouillon cubes <laughs> um <laughs> what a good thought what a good thought i know oh my god the first time a recipe called for bouillon cubes i (laughs) this is so embarrassing i went into the grocery store and then i went into the aisle with like the baking things and the spices and Mm -hmm. i waited until like somebody who looked experienced came in the (laughs) aisle like an older woman and i was like i just can't find the bouillon cubes did they move them did they move them Right, I, I would probably pronounce it the way the letters were. The Balan cubes, <laughs> do you know? This, um, this sweet, this sweet, sweet. They should be in cube form. <laughs> I don't. Are you familiar? I don't know. I feel like they they're like flavored. Well, you know what's funny is I remember always being so tempted by the bouillon the bouillon cubes in my house because my mom had them literally from like 1910 and they were in <laughs> the little spin around like lazy Susan cabinet <laughs> and they're wrapped in like beautiful foil. They're so beautiful. They're so cute. I always thought they were There's chocolate chicken on the package. <laughs> chicken chocolate. Everybody knows it. <laughs> no. Okay. So she is there with her chicken chocolate and she is going to help me find them in the grocery <laughs> <Yeah>. store. <laughs> and then she just kind of ate was a, you know, was around. She was a really good forager. Um, she ate a lot of sorrel and ramps, um, which she called rampions. Cause she is like a ramp is something an old person uses to get up a sidewalk. She was like, I'm not that. She doesn't I'm like to be climbing old. mountains. Hey, she's great. Um, <laughs> and she was even a really good forager for non-food things. One time she found a fork left over by another camper and she's like, huh, well, this will make a fine tool to comb my hair. What I'm a trying to say she is that she invented the dingle hopper. <laughs> what year? What year? 1955. 1989 is when the Little Mermaid came out. (laughs) Thank you. Literally, she did it first. Um, Before Scuttle was Emma. (laughs) (laughs) Now, where did she sleep? Where didn't she sleep? Wow. Picnic tables, benches, (laughs) swings, under people's front porches, on a bed of leaves, literally anywhere she could find. Anywhere she could get arrested. Literally. Uh, Sometimes, if it was especially cold, she was actually, I thought this was super smart. She would take warm rocks from the fire that was like dying out and she would sleep on them to keep her warm. Yo, that's what they do in the show Alone. You watch Alone? (laughs) No. Yo. I'm not like into like survival things. Uh, Um, Maybe I should get into it. No, alone but, is alone's different. Alone's wild. They just drop you off and you have to live, but they don't tell you. You have to film yourself, and they don't tell you when the other people quit. 
So the only way you know you win is if on your checkup day, your spouse jumps out of the <laughs> thing. You know, it's funny is I just heard a wait, wait, don't tell me with the guy who won. Oh my God. He was incredible. He was like, probably good stayed out there for a little bit longer. Actually, he was no. out there for like three months. He was going to die. He was, <laughs> he was like ready to die. I watched the whole season. He was like, if I don't get any fat, I might die. Because, okay, here's something I didn't know. This is not important. But he, he like, is the first person on a loan to actually shoot big game with an arrow and kill mm. something. So usually people are living off of, like, rabbits and squirrels and whatnot. Yeah. So he killed a moose. And he is, um, like, keeping the moose meat. And then he, he has to, like, fight off wolverines with, like, a hatchet. To, like, not eat the moose meat, but then he eats it and he keeps losing weight because moose meat's super lean, so he wasn't getting oh any fat. Oh, my God. So even though he had gotten the moose, he would not have passed his health checkup because <sighs> he was literally dying from not having fat. I didn't know that was a thing. Oh gosh, give me that moose body. I know. I want to be That's lean what, like a moose. Me too. <laughs> what the hell? I was like, I want to be a didn't they were so boo. Didn't know they were so svelte. <laughs> That's why they're so uptight all the time. They have no fat on is their body. Is that bodies. why the one reindeer is called Sven? Because he's svelte. <laughs> so lean. Second story. I, okay. So sorry. Um, Listen, this all pertains to hiking though. It does. Very important things you need to know. Um, how did she know where she was going? Honestly, I cannot answer that because she did not have a map or a compass. And I cannot imagine that the early trail, Had like I know like squares. Zach, well, like, I think Zach got lost a couple times and he's hiking circa now. Like it's not like, you know, a really nice clear paved path all the time. Like, I don't know how she did it. Um, I hate the woods now. Again, she was told in this article that there would be all these warm cabins filled with food along the way, so she may have packed a little too light, Um, but she was not going to stop. And by the time she got to Virginia, people had started noticing her and talking about her. They're like, "Um, have you guys seen this 67-year-old woman in the tiny canvas sneakers hiking the trail all by herself? She had her sambas? (laughs) She was just out there with her sambas, like getting ready to go play some indoor soccer. (laughs) You mean basketball? Exactly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And this meant that she became kind of a celebrity along the trail. And all of a sudden, it's not just other hikers like palling around with her. Reporters are coming onto the trail to find her to write stories about her. Okay. Okay. Okay, Emma. Yeah. It's like, uh, I want to talk to the hiking grandma. And people from all over are reading about her journey and keeping tabs on her. This The Associated Press did a national profile of her. Um, while she was in Maryland, leading to an article in Sports Illustrated when she reached Connecticut. Stop. The swimsuit edition? Of course. Good. Not a lot of people know this, but Emma Gatewood did the very first swimsuit edition. <laughs> yeah. And she got the cover, <laughs> and they were like, sorry. Get this. Pamela Anderson, you can't be here <laughs> right Bobby now. Bobby pins. Gingham bikini. <laughs> White cats. <laughs> somebody be sexy grandma gatewood for halloween this year (laughs) (laughs) i can't (laughs) um now thankfully like she like wasn't super into the attention at first but it meant she that she got a lot more trail magic so the term trail magic was coined by long distance hikers to describe an unexpected occurrence that lifts a hiker's spirits and inspires awe or gratitude 
It may be coming across a friendly face and suddenly you have a meal and a warm bed for the night, or maybe even spotting a rare piece of nature. Just something that anything that helps you keep going. Nope. <laughs> now, I definitely cried a lot when thinking about trail magic today because I do think that it's incredible that like like because I don't trust anybody. So like I am especially not in, like a wooded area just going to be like, yes, you dirty hiker coming to my home. And there are people that do it. I mean, yeah. Zach stayed with them and I think yeah. it's amazing that they do it. I think the I just could because <laughs> I'm a bad person. No, I think the only relation I have to that is like, um, so my dad is always like when I ran the Baltimore Marathon, it was just these are the blocks, this is the this. But when I ran the Baltimore Marathon 30 years after he did there are tables set up. There are people outside with signs. There are specific people who always play the same song outside yeah. of their house. There's people who hold up signs that are like, hit this to power up. And you just like <laughs> go by and like slap the sign. Like that's the type of thing that these people are doing on the trail that like oh, once, yeah. once something's established, you know, like when you have old marathons, like the one in Boston and San Francisco and in Baltimore, it's like, oh, right. Everybody wants to be a part of it, even if they're not participating in it. Yeah. And that's what these people are doing for Emma on the trail and yeah. for all the hikers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's only gotten better. And and it, I think it got this term because it really is magical. And like you feel like you are just at your very worst and like you're hungry and you don't have a place to stay for the night. And then magically someone's like, oh, yeah, come sleep on my couch. I'll feed you dinner. It like that is fucking magical. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, and thankfully, because people were suddenly gabbing about grandma, people were keeping an eye out for her and they were hoping to get a chance to meet her and become friends with her and help her out. Of course. So it's really good for her because. People are actually seeking her to help her out, which like is not something that happens a lot until usually it's kind of a happy accident. Mm. And some people even decades later describe Emma stopping by their house for a meal and telling them these insane stories from the trail and just being like, all right, goodbye. And they're like, who was that? That was insane. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, in one case, this trail magic ended up really helping her out. Um in a really weird way. So Emma was walking, obviously, and she came across these eight young, like African-American guys. And, uh, you know, she's like, hmm, it's weird. Didn't expect to see like eight black teenagers from Harlem in the woods. That's kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> and they got to talking and everybody's getting along. They had this beautiful meal together. They're like, oh, we're already making dinner. Just like come hang out with us. And they had this great time. And they asked her if she wanted to stay the night with them. And, like, they were just kind of in this, like, lean-to. There's a lot of those along the trails. Just, like, these kind of, like, three-sided, like, open-air shack kind of things. Right. Um, but Emma was, like, I'm a proper lady, and I don't really know if it's, you know, going to be kosher for me to be, like, sleeping in a lean-to with eight teenage boys. She's, like, I feel like that's a little dicey. Right. You know, not because of it. Like, she felt in danger. Emma, like, never felt in danger. She just didn't want to be improper. Yeah, exactly. She was, like, no, I'll be imposing. That's improper. You know, no thank you, but thank you. Um, so she moved on, but then some bad weather hit because there had been a series of hurricanes <laughs> during her trip. Because it's the east fucking coast. It's the east coast and it's terrible. Um, <laughs> and then she, like, was like, oh, shit, I'm not going to make it to the next shelter in time. So she went back and ended up staying with them. And again, they had a really nice time together. And when they all went out to hike the next day, the guy said that she just smoked them. They could not keep up with her. <laughs> 
But then when she got to the river, she ran into another problem. All this bad weather they had been experiencing caused the rivers to swell. And Emma was like expecting to be able to like wade across or find another path across this river. Um, But it turns out she would have to swim across and she didn't know how to swim. What? Yeah. Oh, she's from Ohio. Mm-hmm. They don't have like lakes and things. Exactly. <laughs> they might have lakes. I don't know what you. Have I don't in know Ohio. what water features Ohio has. I mean, I, I feel like it's... a couple rivers. I feel like they have plenty of like, well, I small mean, it, rivers. It's in between the Appalachian Mountains and the yeah. Mississippi River, right? Some it's mountain like... rivers. Brah. Yeah. But you know, like she didn't really have any like anything to go anywhere. So like, yeah, she didn't know how to swim. And yeah, she we've been fighting all the, the time over here on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um. So wow. she waited and the boys eventually catched up with her or caught up with her and (laughs) and one of them was like i got this he puts emma on his back like the gingerbread man and swims her across the river incredible incredible emma was so grateful and she thanked the boys who she just described as like good catholic boys from harlem she didn't really know anything else so when her like great 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 grandnephew was like he like did all his research and he's reading her journals and he comes across the story and he goes who are these guys in the woods <laughs> like what is the story here did he go find them he found them oh my gosh Katie turns out these Catholic boys were not Catholic at all uh, they were the leaders of two rival gangs from Harlem stop it and they had the bloods been- in the crypts yes basically no and they had been caught up in all this like really horrible gang violence so and it was left. a particularly hot summer and these like two leaders from the catholic church were like we have to intervene so they're like what can we do so like all right we're gonna get like the top four boys from each gang and invite them to go to vermont for a free trip and like these kids had never been out of harlem before they're like yeah sure we'll go so they literally took them out and they hiked the trail together and like mended this relationship and they like and then like these two rival gangs became friends. Oh, wait, you mean like when we pay attention to people yeah. that are struggling, like it turns mm-hmm. out good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my God. I wish I, I knew. <laughs> and, and like, and like on the trail, like they meet people like Emma and they're like, wow, like there are people out there who like are like good and like we can also help people. And like, it just, it really changed their lives. And Emma met them and she didn't, she never knew that that's who they were. She's like, ah, the nice Catholic boys. (laughs) (laughs) These nice Catholic boys from Harlem. I love that. That's adorable and such a testament to like what people are trying to do when they do things like summer camps and like excursions for people. Like we talked about with Cheryl Swoops a couple weeks ago. What's so funny is that was actually, um, I went to summer camp when I was a kid and it was run by a church based out of Baltimore City. And there was literally like four churches in Baltimore City that all went in with each other. And we're like, these kids in Baltimore, they need a place to, like, go to camp. Like, they literally never for get cheap to, like, and yeah, for, for nothing cheap, for, like, nothing. So all four churches went in and bought this fucking Bible camp, like, out in Westminster. Right. And so every year, each church, like, every summer, each church would get, like, a couple of weeks. Mm. And then they'd be able to, like, take kids, like, for, like, no money, like, out to summer camp, which a lot of them wouldn't have normally gotten a chance to do. Right. And uh, I had a fantastic time. <laughs> it was really funny because, yeah, I didn't go to that church. I didn't have anything to do with them. I just, yeah, I just got to go to summer camp every year, and it was fucking awesome. Um, <laughs> um, okay. She had all sorts of really wild experiences and encounters like this. Um, but, of course, 
It was all leading one place, Mount Katahdin. After five months of hiking, she finally reached the mountain, which is very arduous to climb and in windy itself. right isn't it's it like the windiest windy. place in america or it something has an, like ele- that? it has an elevation of around like five thousand feet and it takes hours just to get up the mountain to get to the end of the trail like, Ew, all i hate uphill. that i hate it Ew. and of course she is exhausted by this time and she's got the, she's getting there and she's like all right tomorrow's the day and it's the day before she's supposed to finish and this poor woman falls. She breaks her glasses again. No, she doesn't. Sprains her ankle. I hate her. And she was like, I don't care. And she goes up anyway. With she a can hardly ankle? see. She's, her ankle's all messed what up. What is she doing? Crawling up the mountain? Probably. Something like that. In her sambas? Because <laughs> of those shoes. She didn't wear basketball shoes. She should have protected her ankles. <laughs> We've learned. And on September 25th, 1955, after 146 days, the average is 165. So and she exactly, did that quicker than It's some also people. exactly one month before her birthday. So mm-hmm. good for her. She made it. She finished the Appalachian Trail alone. She stood there for a minute and sang the first verse of America the Beautiful. Of course she did. Signed the registry, making her the first woman to solo through hike the Appalachian Trail. In total, she lost 30 pounds, went through seven pairs of Keds and Converses. Wait, she lost 30 pounds? I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now I'll go. Now I'm in. (laughs) Um, And her feet swelled so bad that her shoe size increased by two sizes. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Lady friend, eat less salt. Salt from the sausages. (laughs) Stop drinking that sausage water. Was she pregnant again? So much sodium. <laughs> um, and then she turned around, walked back the mountain, down the mountain. It was like very like, you know, now it's like a lot of day hikers go up there. So like when you finish it, it's like there's a lot of people around and like people are like, Wah! good job, I did it. You know, and hers was just like, peace. <laughs> All right. See you later. Time to walk back. <laughs> <laughs> on go. my broken ankle. I gotta go back to Ohio. <laughs> um, so she goes back and she gets down the mountain and all these reporters are waiting for her. They're like, Emma, did you do it? She's like, I mean, I didn't stop halfway up the mountain. Of course I fucking did it, you idiot. Nobody went with um, her to like take a picture or some shit? No, these reporters were gonna haul their cameras like eight hours up this mountain. Oh, fuck <laughs> that. Get a helicopter. Ooh. Come on. And they just wanted to see. They're like, did you do? And she's like, yeah, I did. And they're just blown away. In fact, all of America was. Word traveled fast of one of them. They called her the most celebrated pedestrian in America. <laughs> Yeah, me too. And uh, when she gets done, she starts getting requests for interviews and stuff. She appeared on the Today Show and also (laughs) some other show with Groucho Marx, (laughs) which I tried to find footage of and I couldn't find it. Um, There was like another one. It was like a different Groucho Marx episode that was like just a different old lady. (laughs) Don't want to know about it. I don't want to know about it. Um, (laughs) But what's funny is that she like wasn't a very fun guest she was like kind of a grumpy old lady and she was like yeah it sucked and it was really fucking hard (laughs) like that's all i'll say about it nothing was good about this and like okay um next up we have julia child doing an (laughs) omelet i feel like jimmy kimmel would or 
Yeah, he would have been fine. Sure, with it. sure. <laughs> one of the guys, one of the boys. They would have been able to do it. Um, when are we gonna have a woman on late night? Have we had that question? There's been a couple of busy Phillips, um, and then there's the other late night show. I mean, Chelsea Handler did it, but she did like a um, Comedy Central. Who's done like prime time, like prime time on one of the main networks? Um, I don't know who's done prime time on any of the main networks because I honestly don't watch it. I know I don't. Wa- I don't. I watch only watch Jimmy shows. Fallon because oh, there's he's- Samantha B. Okay. Um, Joan Rivers is a very famous one. Yes, I'm obsessed with. Oh, Joan and then Rivers. there's Lily Singh. That's the one I was thinking okay. of. She was like the YouTube star who like then like got her own talk show or okay, like fair, late fair, night fair. show. Um, but yeah, I can't wait. But to not cover- like NBC or CBS, right? Like uh, those are the ones that are like I don't see because I don't know because I don't watch network TV anymore. I wish I knew. Oh, and I think a lot of the okay. There are a lot of a lot of them are cable, right? Or am I wrong? I could I be wrong. I have no idea. Oh no, Lily Singh's NBC series. Okay, well, good. Okay, Lily Singh, here you um, are. I can't wait to cover Joan Rivers because what, what's his face did to her? Oh my god, was so terrible. Also, I mean, who did I say? I meant Joan Rivers. Did yeah, I you say said Joan, Rivers? Joan Rivers. Okay. But Emma wasn't done hiking. Wait, no. She keeps going? <laughs> she keeps going. Oh, get out of here. She ends up solo through hiking the Appalachian Trail again in 1960 when she's 73. Stop it. This time she said it was just for fun, though. She really wanted to enjoy it this time. And <laughs> just I just wanted to like it. And then she did it a third time when she was 75. Hattrick. Hattrick, though. You have to have one. But the last time she did it in parts. But this made her the first person ever, man or woman, to hike it three times. No one had ever done that before. I don't like it. She also walked 2,000 miles of the Oregon Trail in 1959 in 95 days, walking from Missouri to Portland, Oregon, where she averaged walking 22 miles a day. Well, it's super flat. So, I mean. That's the thing. Yeah. She walked 14 miles a day when she did the Appalachian Trail. So, she's like really speeding through this. Because, again, it's not mountains. It's all freaking prairie. I mean, unless you get dysentery or your mm, oxen falls in a river. True. She wasn't ready for that. <laughs> she wasn't in a covered wagon, you mean? In computer class in I 1992. <laughs> oh, was that when you were born? Three. Three, right? Yeah, I was born. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> so Oregon Trail, the computer game, was like in the prime of existence. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as we sh- said, she's kind of a celebrity at this point. So when she got to her destination in Portland from the Oregon Trail, 5,000 people were waiting for her oh, and oh! cheering for her. I love it. The mayor came out and he greeted her and he took her for a helicopter ride and then he took her out on a yacht. I mean, she... It's the toast of the town. People love her. That's incredible. When I ran the marathon, though, you know how many people had signs that said, will you marry me? Mm. I was like, is that how you're going to me? <laughs> me? 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 Okay. Me? Anybody who finishes the I marathon? I like, walked up and got on my knee. Yes. No, it was just all over the marathon. I was like, really? While she's sweaty, she or he is sweaty and like bananas. Come on. Also, speaking of helicopters, I had a friend who um, he proposed to his boyfriend on a helicopter. (laughs) And it was like the most magical thing. (sighs) I loved every bit of the pictures of it. Um, Okay. (laughs) I'm so jealous of watching proposals. I had a good one. And I'm still jealous of watching it. Really? 
they make me extraordinarily uncomfortable. The public ones. Oh. The private ones, like oh, the helicopter ours was one. was very private. Yours yeah. was private too. Mine was, was like on a... the most private. Yeah. <laughs> Not the most private, but yeah, mine was on a on like a little bridge in the Netherlands. Um, yeah. Where you hid it from everybody. Yeah. From days, <laughs> even though we all already fucking knew. Um, I was just like, God damn it. Casey lost the ring. <laughs> Casey lost the goddamn ring. Didn't he? That's what I thought. I was like, I'm going to have to replace it. I'm going to have to pay no, for it now. You're just what keeping the fuck? it secret secret. Um, <laughs> even though everybody already knew. Bullshit. <laughs> what is wrong? Go ahead. Okay. I'm, what's wrong with me? But, this is the thing, like, walking was just her life. She never did it for any kind of fame or fortune. In fact, sometimes she did it just to get around. <laughs> she never learned how to drive, so she just walked everywhere. Like, her, she would walk to her daughter's house to visit her, um, but her daughter lived in Pennsylvania, and she lived in Ohio, so she would walk 280 miles to her house. I mean, but they do house. touch, I feel like. No, they are close. Yeah. <laughs> but... She's still walking 280 yeah. miles just to see I, her daughter. I mean, that's super, that's super fucking far, but I just want to acknowledge that those two states touch one another. Oh, yeah. It's not like walking from, like, Missouri to Georgia. Like, I feel like that would be a lot it's longer. It's probably the same distance. Probably. Um, <laughs> I don't know so anything. from that first attempt at the trail in 1954, Emma logged around 14,000 miles during her hiking career, which is the equivalent of walking back and forth between Baltimore and Los Angeles about five and a half times. <laughs> but she's more than just a hiker. She was a longtime advocate for the outdoors and maintaining the integrity of the beautiful trails of America. She used her newfound public standing to demand better trail maintenance on the Appalachian Trail. She was like, that was bullshit. Fix it. Um, <laughs> which has made the trail a lot more accessible and manageable. More Harlem boys, please. Exactly. Along the way. Get them out here. And people credit her with helping the trail kind of get on the map of pop culture. A lot of people didn't really know about the Appalachian Trail. Like, frankly, it just like, I mean, it wasn't that old, but her story kind of sparked new interest, which meant more hikers, more volunteers, more donations and more care for the trail. In fact, a lot of people credit her with saving the Appalachian Trail because since she hiked it, they said that they have like redone and improved 99% of it. And I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but I honestly think a lot of people are like, well, if a woman in her 60s can do it, then like I can do it. Yeah, no, exactly. So a lot I like like she regained this interest and then there's more people there and they're like, wow, we should probably like make this better <laughs> if all these people are going to be doing it um she is featured in the appalachian trail museum and she is credited with starting something that's now called the ultra light hiking movement um so i mean <laughs> there are not a lot of able-bodied 20 year olds who could survive with her food and gear <laughs> but she inspired people to forego all the unnecessary things and bring the bare minimum you know she's like you don't need this. You don't need that. She's like, you don't need a tent. Just bring a tarp, which I know that's what my brother did. He didn't have a tent. He had like a tarp and a hammock, you know? <laughs> but I mean, it's also like, like I said earlier, it's what Nellie Bly did. They yeah. said women can't pack that light. And she said, watch me with a corset. I exactly. can have a petticoat. I can do with that light. Yep. And that like, and she started that whole movement of like, oh, I could do it with literally just a backpack. Like her pack weighed like 15 pounds. And like, that's. Like, the bare minimum that, like, it can weigh. What a lady. <laughs> um, 
da, 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 in June 2012, she was inducted into the Appalachian Trail Hall of Fame, and her story is still told on the trail today. Some parts might be a little exaggerated. Like, a lot of people think that she, like, never wore shoes, which is not true. Um, like, someone was like, I can't believe she walked this whole thing barefoot. That's incredible. And someone's like, no, she didn't. <laughs> she had <laughs> shoes. Um, but the point is that her spirit lives on, particularly in the fact that it opened up the incredible world of through hiking for older people people and for women in the 50s only 14 people completed a through hike of the trail like in that whole decade but now hundreds she of did people it three times mm-hmm. <laughs> but now hundreds of people complete the trail each year in the 2010s the total number of through hikers was 9,261 29 percent of through hikers are women and that number is growing every year And if you want to experience the trail magic of Grandma Gatewood, you can hike the Grandma Gatewood Memorial Trail in Ohio. This is a trail that she actually worked to create. She worked on building this trail for about 22 years. And every year, there's a winter hike in January that Emma actually started herself and she would lead every year. In fact, this year was the 57th hike. Not so many people attended because of COVID, but crowds can sometimes reach up to 5,600 people just gathering together to go on a walk in the woods to honor this amazing woman and hike her favorite trail. Emma Gatewood died at her home on June 4th, 1973 at the age of 85. She left behind 11 children, 24 grandchildren, 30 great-grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. That's a lot of trail magic. Oh, man. <laughs> and that's the story of Emma Grandma Gatewood. <laughs> I love that. I think it's such a good story. That's yeah, it's so like it starts off so terrible. And then it's just like you're literally just like feel like you're just walking in the woods with her. And then you like forget like all the horrible things that happened to her. Because she was literally like someone was in there like, how did you do it? Like, like 22, like 2100 miles. And she's like, huh. she goes. After what I've been through, 2,000 miles is a piece of cake. She's <laughs> like, I had 11 kids, A. Eh? Yeah, I had 11 <laughs> kids. I was being abused for 30 years. Like, no, this is fine. <laughs> I'd rather. Yeah. I'd rather be this. Um, Wow. Okay. I, yeah, I'm blown away. <laughs> what a great story. What a, like, what a comfortable story yeah. to, like, exist in for, you know, an hour. Yeah. That's nice. It was nice. All right. Now we're going to talk about these two women together in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay. Wow. I mean, they definitely came from like a lot of kids and their families, um, but with their father being like out and away early, which I yeah. thought was interesting. And then both to like a very early marriage, which I yes. feel like is something that is like a, a plague of um people that are impoverished yeah like you are gonna marry to a help out your previous family Mm -hmm. and then to connect to a new family Mm -hmm. and it can turn out terribly yeah I mean I always I mean I think of the Amy March quote she's like don't tell me marriage isn't an economic proposition Mm -hmm. because for especially someone with fewer means like they both had just like rough childhoods with like not a lot of money like they don't have men fighting for their affection, you know, right. in any particular way. Like it seemed like it was like, okay, like 
this, this is, is the happen. best option and emma was fucking guilted into it which is horrible and they both had abusive first marriages yeah. and i mean you know in terms of miriam she walked away yeah and not everybody gets that right like yeah. the right to divorce is something that is um desirable oh yeah and a lot of necessary. women and a lot of women don't have it because if yeah. you don't have the right to divorce then marriage is slavery yeah absolutely and i really feel strongly that emma was trapped in that because not only could she not get divorced but like if she did like there's all her <laughs> 11 children going with this guy or like maybe she never gets contact with them again or like her like her literally only options were to run away and never see her kids again or just stay. Yeah, you don't get ownership of your children in divorce, especially in the time period that she yeah. lived. Like mm-hmm. present day women most often oh, yeah. do. Um, but that wasn't the case back then. And then I mean the same is true. Like when you said thirty years of marriage, I felt this like thirty years of exile from South Africa. Oh yeah. Where it's just like you are living a non-existence. It's even though you might have happy moments, you might have accomplishments, you might have so many things. You are denied the thing that is your core. Oh, yeah. I was thinking a lot like talking about exile and hardship and loneliness. You know, I was thinking a lot about how Emma probably felt very lonely in that house with this guy. Like she was either working or being you know and that's a very lonely feeling like I don't think she had anyone to turn to and then but then she got to choose a different type of loneliness like she's out on the trail alone by choice because then it's like yeah no one can do anything to me and then I was thinking a lot about that with Miriam and how she is out in the world and she is being rejected and it's like it doesn't matter how many shows she's selling out, how many famous people she's meeting. There is an intense type of loneliness with feeling rejected and not welcome in your home, which I feel like both of these women felt like there is a rejection and a loneliness connected with home, which I think is really brutal. But it's also so hard because I think. That once a woman is accomplished, even Mm -hmm. if they are turned away, they're expected to be loving. So like Miriam is Mama Africa. Mm -hmm. She is this mother that has come to all these countries to celebrate their independence. And regardless of what's going on with Emma, she is the grandma of the trail. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you know what? Why do we keep turning these women away and then expect them to be (laughs) these matriarchal figures Mm -hmm. that love us? Yeah. It's like you cannot continue to hate a woman and then also expect her to be a woman who loves you. Yeah. That's not fair. It's the ultimate trope of like motherhood of like it is something that, you know, you're expected to give unrelent unrelent like relentlessly yeah and then not expect anything in return and that fucking sucks yeah it does because you're right they're both both of their positions in the world and in society and what they mean to greater society are of these matriarchal figures of like i'm so glad you're here to take care of us even though we're not doing a good job of taking care of you (laughs) like and people need to be taken care of yeah i mean thankfully like you know 
Emma Gatewood was like respected later on and like you know she received a lot of kindness from the trail but like she spent so many years not being acknowledged or taken care of in any capacity <laughs> and then and then yet there she's expected to just take care of eastern seaboard <laughs> right we all love you good for you right and then yeah. you have yeah Miriam who's experiencing just such similar things of like we're going to reject you a whole bunch but still be a symbol of like change and love and be gracious and be kind it's like <laughs> like yeah. i like and she can't even marry the right person you know yeah. i just i hated that that like then she finally does fall in love and you know he's not an abusive asshole and then like they're like sorry and it ruins her career yeah just like because of an association he has with a group like it's and it's fucked. it's so funny to listen to because like in terms of like the black panthers i know Growing up, like when I was taught about black pride and like the the it was the male sprinters right at the Olympics who put their fists up when they yeah. were on the podium. Like I was just taught to reject that. And mm-hmm. I think that and not explicitly. Right. No one told me those people are bad, but they were I was implicitly taught that like they were doing something that was counterculture. Yeah. But that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And I think both of these women were doing something that was counterculture and people were taught not to accept it. And then later on they were like, oh, yeah, no, exactly. And I just I kind of got this feeling like you said, like when you were talking about how like, you know, she is literally like the toast of the town. And I like, feel like, you know, you're yeah, you can be the toast of the town until you're a problem for somebody mm-hmm. and like that wasn't so much in Miriam's case but like I mean um Emma's case but like I just got so frustrated that it's like I felt like Miriam was just put in such a box of like just sing but like don't talk mm. you know what I'm saying yeah it's funny because there are two types of websites about her there's ones that position her as a performer and there's ones that position her as an activist and there's very few that position her as both Hmm. And I find that to be intriguing because nobody wants to accept both things. Yeah. People want you to be, have your 15 minutes of fame and go away. Mm-hmm. Or they want you to be a powerful spokesperson. Yeah. Well, and it's why, you know, Emma didn't tell anyone about her abuse. Of course. Ever. People only found out when her great, great, great grand nephew wrote her biography and he found all this out and he was like, why can't she be, you know, this incredible woman who hikes the Appalachian trail and like does all these conservation things and also be like a survivor of domestic abuse. Like why do we only want her to be one? And like, thankfully like we do have a more nuanced understanding, but you know, it's like, I don't think that people necessarily especially at the time she was like, she knew that people didn't want to hear that. She was like, people want to see me walk and that's it. Well, look like, at Meghan Markle. People don't oh want to know gosh, both. No. People don't want to know both. No, it makes them uncomfortable. People want to know one or the other. They don't want to believe that people have nuanced existences. No, it's so true. It's so, so true. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you for telling yeah, me that story. I feel you. enlightened. I'm so glad to know about her. Mm-hmm. I knew only that she walked the Appalachian trail. Cool. And I didn't know anything about your person. So, (laughs) 
All right, Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So tonight, I want to toast to those who use their platform for good. So when you have attention, I think you should use it. And people are often critical of celebrities and athletes that do this. But there's a reason that you're in that place. You worked really hard to get there. And I think the same is true of teachers and nurses and anybody who has a public position you have a voice Mm -hmm. that you worked hard to get and you shouldn't be silenced yeah and i think it's beautiful that you're allowed to speak your mind and people shouldn't tell you that your career is separate from your voice Mm. because your voice is connected to your experience Mm. so i love it cheers cheers who do you have to toast i'm going to toast people who make their own magic I think that when you are someone who experiences hardship or when you're abused for as long as Emma was, it's probably really difficult to believe in anything good. But Emma created an entire new life for herself when she was a much older woman. And this new life was away from her shitty husband and her difficult life. And it was full of magic. She saw the best and worst of humanity in her lifetime. And she ended up leaving a better mark on this world than I think a lot of people expected her to. So cheers Cheers. to her. All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay. So laptops (laughs) are a thing. Uh (laughs) Um, And I love the plug-in USB that gives you the number keypad. And I just want to promote everybody buying mm -hmm. The literal number keypad that you used to have on your keyboard. Mm-hmm. I use it specifically for grading because I don't want to type 100. Like yeah. it's a one over here and two zeros over here. Mm-hmm. It just is so millennial slash Gen X slash boomer to have the number keypad. It costs you $5 <laughs> to just plug the USB into your laptop and have the number keypad sitting next to you. Right. So it's like an attachment that you can buy. That's just, it's just, just numbers. numbers and it sits next to your keypad. It has changed my life <laughs> because I have always been so frustrated that the numbers got removed from laptops. I was yeah. like, I only get this top thing, which I used as function. I have keys. a classic keyboard. I just want, and like people used to be like, we'll just plug in an old keyboard. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to carry a whole keyboard. (laughs) And it's just like, it slip, it can slip in your, it's the size of a cell phone. Mm. It can slip in your pocket. It goes anywhere. And I just plug it, plug in the USB, sit it next to my computer. You can turn it off and on. So the batteries don't die. There you go. I, it's changed my life because (laughs) people who type numbers all day don't want to go across the top of their laptop. It's too much. Yeah. So I honestly, if you are struggling (laughs) and you've been a cashier at some point in your life, (laughs) I know, like I got used to the, you know, on the key. I don't even have to look. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. It's a really important thing. I want you to understand, Katie. I don't type any numbers ever. So I might buy one for you just to have it. (laughs) Okay. It has, because I all I do is type numbers because yeah. it's grades. Mm-hmm. It's like 98. And that's easy because they're next to each other. Right. But what if the kid got a 101? Yeah. Too much. 
too much. <laughs> I don't know if any child's getting 101. Well, but... if they get extra credit, but oh, yeah. not in COVID. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing as extra credit. There's sub credit. That's it. Okay. Promo something. I swear somebody understands what I'm saying. No, I'm sure a ton of people do. Um, Yeah. No, I'm sure they do. Get it. Get the, get the keypad. It seems stupid, but get it. It changes everything. <laughs> it's a life changer. Katie, it's serious. Okay. What do you have? Uh, I'm going to recommend uh, Wheel of Fortune on Netflix. It's so fun. <laughs> Katie, oh, I didn't know that there were so, like I've always, it's always been like a background. It was always a background show Stop. in my house. And now I'm watching it. I'm like, wow, the rules are insane. I didn't know they did crosswords on it. Like, I love people. Like, there was literally someone, it was like, and he goes, Bing, Fort Lauderdale. And I was like, how did you do that? You magician. He's incredible. Uh, can I tell you a secret? Yes. Okay, so me and my kids and producer play a game where we watch Netflix and then a show picture comes up and we all try to guess it before <laughs> the title comes up. And we all try to come up with the funniest name. So there's a picture of Pat Sajak and Vanna White that comes up where there's his like arms around her waist mm-hmm. and Caroline goes, murderous affairs. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, Wheel of Fortune? <laughs> Which also let me tell you, rewatching Wheel of Fortune has made me do like a deep dive on Vanna White. Let's do her. Should we we do have her? to do her because I found out that like, so she in like the eighties or something was pregnant for the first time. What? And they revealed it as a clue. The clue, the answer was Vanna is pregnant. And then she miscarried <gasps> weeks later. No, stop it. I know. Stop it. I know. It's a whole separate show. We have to do an episode on her. We have to. Remember when she used to have to turn those Oh, tubes, yeah. And now she just touches the corner? She's mm-hmm. not even necessary. <gasps> She's always necessary. Her outfits <laughs> are necessary. Okay. All right. We'll do uh, Vanna White in the future. Um, but yeah, I just. You. We like you. Oh, everything about you is perfection. Twitter, Facebook. You guys have been professionally finding me on LinkedIn <laughs> and I love it. I go by Allie Bain comma EDD and then you can find me on LinkedIn. Thank you for those of you who have done that. You're very sweet and you're also professors at universities so don't feel embarrassed to not like me because I say lots of terrible things but <laughs> on LinkedIn are you like super crazy on LinkedIn? No. <laughs> no but I think no one on LinkedIn is crazy so like oh, you can't if be. I put anything in a pro. On, if I if I post a cocktail it's like whoa <laughs> what? <laughs> I do have a LinkedIn and I should be using it more I used it for a while when the business was slow. Well honestly if you if you have a LinkedIn, just follow producer because he's the most fun on LinkedIn. He's very good at it. He's so he's good at it. He's good as at good at LinkedIn as I am at Twitter. Yeah. But anyway, find us everywhere. We are here for you. We love talking to you. Mm-hmm. We love seeing you. We love when you like things, when you talk about things, when you tell us things. We see them. We're obsessed with them. And we cannot wait to tell you more stories. We're so happy for everything you send us. Yes. And last but not least, we want you to never get. That well-behaved women don't uh, call out of work because it's nice out. <laughs> and they really make history. <laughs> Bye-bye. Goodbye.
listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.